The Arizona Fall League season has concluded. Who had the best and worst six weeks in the desert? Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked on MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, award-winning baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. We're proudly part of the Locked On Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. And today's episode is made possible by our friends at FanDuel. Make every moment more, because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 if your team wins. Visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to get started. So the Arizona Fall League season has concluded. Surprise uh, win. The surprise Segueros, second straight year. They are the AFL champions. They beat Peoria 6-5 on, like, over the weekend. So congratulations to them. But I want to look at some of the who led different statistical categories and some of the winners and a couple losers from the Arizona Fall League. We talked last week about you don't want to overvalue the Arizona Fall League, right? We're not going to dramatically change our perceptions of any individual player based off what they did in Arizona, but it can confirm some biases that we have, maybe. It can make us reevaluate a scouting report on somebody and can shift people up and down. So uh, different categories, depending on what you look at, some guys really stood out. Home runs, the le- the leaders tied at seven, and that was Aaron Sabato and Kali Rosario. The difference here, Sabato did it in 18 games, 65 at-bats, versus Rosario's 25 games and 89 at bats. Rosario won the home run derby too. So obviously the Minnesota Twins outfielder, plenty of power there. When you look at an OPS perspective, your winner was Jacob Marcy, the center fielder for the San Diego Padres. Guy we've talked about on this show quite a bit, including a whole conversation last week about don't overvalue the AFL and move him too far up the prospect rankings simply based on his strong Arizona Fall League, but I mean, what he did 1215 OPS in his 24 games. He went 391, 508, 707, five home runs, 18 extra base hits out of 36 hits. So, literally, half of all of his hits were for extra bases. 25 strikeouts in 24 games, a little bit higher strikeout rate than you'd love, but 21 walks. So, walked almost as much as he struck out, 16 and 19 on stolen bases. Showed you he can play a good center field. Showed you some power. Showed you some speed. Doing some of everything. Hit really hit really well. Your leader, oh, some of your other guys in OPS, you had a total of seven guys with an OPS over 1,000. Starting at that bottom and going up, Wes Clark, the first baseman, was at 1,003. Catcher Dominic Keegan of the Rays, 1.031. Something where only played in 15 games, but did really well in those 15 games. It's a lot of the catchers just did less time. Liam Hicks 
is on this list too at a 107.5 and he caught in 18 games. The winners, some of the people in our total basis challenge we had in the Discord for the AFL, which the winner of that was Mark. Congratulations there. Some of them had guys like Hicks or Keegan and they racked up plenty of base total bases when they were in the games. They just didn't play as many games as guys like Marcy and Triantos. Uh, Caleb Durbin, uh, 104.4. Oliver Dunn, 107.1. It's a lot of infielders in this. And then James Triantos of the Cubs, 1174. Your stolen base leaders. Again, Jacob Marcy had 16. Caleb Durbin had 21. And Victor Scott of the Cardinals had 18. And so, like Jacob Marcy, plenty of conversation. We've covered him on this show. James Triantos, very good season. Covered him on this show as well. He was one of those was high up there in OPS. But I want to talk about Victor Scott for a minute. Because if there's one thing that this Cardinals team has shown that they're able to do, it's been developing outfielders. And Victor Scott, more so than anybody else, the people that I talked to that went to Arizona and watched these games in person, and I wasn't able to make it this year, the plan's to go next year, but of the people who I talked to that were out there in person, Victor Scott was almost unanimously the most impressive person that they saw live. Slash line in his 23 games, 84 at-bats, 286, 388, 417. Three home runs, five extra base hits, 12 walks to eight strikeouts, and 18 to 21 on stolen bases. The thing here for Victor Scott, 2022 fifth rounder out of West Virginia, and has just absolutely done nothing but steal tons of bases since he got into the minors. Something where had 94 stolen bases last year, tied for the lead in the minors, and then obviously went and did more at the AFL. He got a good opportunity to work with the major league team during spring training while guys were out at the World Baseball Classic. And it's something where he, the, the big things that stand out to me is one, how glaringly loud some of these tools are, right? It is legitimate 80 speed. We very rarely give guys 80 grades. It is legitimately 80 speed. Defensively, he's probably one of the better center fielders in all of the minors. Not quite Pete Crow Armstrong level, but just a step below that. So Victor Scott has amazing defense, like exceptional speed, elite speed. And then obviously stolen bases, very good offensively, and I watched more Victor Scott in this six weeks than I had watched all season. Offensively, he has two two completely different approaches based on if it's a righty or a lefty. Against a righty, it's a traditional approach where he's setting up and he's just looking to try to find a good pitch that he can put some power behind and drive. I don't think the power is exceptional for Victor Scott. I'd probably give it a 40 or a 45. But against lefties, he is very quick and willing to shorten the swing and just focus on getting the ball in play. He's not afraid to bunt. I think he bunted 28 times this season, and most of those, like 25 of them, were against lefties. And he hit 708 on bunts. The goal is just get the ball in play because he's a left-handed hitter, he's that much closer to first base, he's going to be able to get on base. It's something where 
he's going to make you play very good defense to get him out. And I can't remember very many players who have significantly different approaches like that. There are some guys who maybe against like a a lefty versus a righty, they're looking to hit for more power or whatever. I can't remember somebody who has this significant of a difference in, in their approach, but it works, right? And so he's a guy that, I mean, it feels like he's definitely going to, he spent half the year in AA Springfield, hit 323. I would imagine he probably goes to AAA to start next season simply because the Arizona Fall League gave him a high A to double A, some more experience in that, those two levels. And I mean, depending on what happens in, in St. Louis, because they have a ton of outfielders, they always do. This is an organization that does really well at developing outfielders. And they've got some guys they're looking to trade, maybe a Dylan Carlson, Teller O'Neill, et cetera. Depending on what happens, I could see him getting a call up sometime next season. Maybe it's late in the season. They get him that couple weeks in September to position him for a 2025 thing. But Victor Scott, to me, probably climbed up into the top four, top five prospects in this Cardinal system based on not only what he did in the regular season. Remember, we're not making significant changes based on the Arizona Fall League, but what he did in the regular season, plus reinforcing the new profile of Victor Scott as just a dude who can relentlessly get on base. Um, Getting better in double A versus high A, Peoria, as far as a statistical standpoint, he batted like 282 in high A and he batted like 323 in double A. Kind of shows that he's more confident in his approach and what he's doing. And it's going to be really interesting to see what Victor Scott does next season. But one of the biggest winners out of the Arizona Fall League for me. In just a minute, let's talk about some of the pitchers. Some of these are top prospects. Some of them are not, but there's quite a few of them that had fantastic years. And we'll discuss that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. You can score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book, because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time to get in on the action. You have time. We're getting towards the end of the college season. You can get your feet underneath you and learn how all of the different NFL and football betting works, spreads, player props, over-unders, all that stuff, so that you're ready to go for not only bowl season, but also the NFL postseason. So visit FanDuel.com slash on to get started on your football betting with FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. Okay, so looking at some of the pitching in the Arizona Fall League, some of your leaders, uh, stuff like that, your lowest ERA, your ERA title, goes to reliever Jack Perkins. Had an 0-1 record. He pitched in 10 games. It was 12 and a third innings. He picked up one save, which... I mean, your leader in saves had five, so it's not really a big deal. Uh, But he allowed nine hits, two runs, but no earned runs. So zero, zero, zero. Six walks, 15 strikeouts. Very good thing in relief there. But to me, the two standouts, and for different reasons, is 
Blue Jays lefty Ricky Tiedemann, and Angels righty Davis Daniel. Daniel's a guy that dealt with, I think it was a shoulder injury, and missed most of the season in 2023. Didn't, I don't think he started pitching until August. Got a little bit of time in the majors this year. Three appearances, none of them were starts. Went one and one with a 219 ERA. Walked nine guys in those 12 and a third innings. Had nine strikeouts. But again, just didn't allow a ton of runs. Allowed three earned runs. One, one of those was a homer. And in the Arizona Fall League, he made four starts. Went 1-0 with a 1-8-9 ERA. In 19 innings, he allowed four runs on 10 total hits. That was two homers. He hit one batter. Five walks to 25 strikeouts. It was one of the lowest whips and batting averages of any pitcher, any qualified pitcher in the AFL. It was a .79 whip and a .152 average. And A little bit outside of your traditional profile of a pitcher that goes to the Arizona Fall League because, again, he made his MLB debut in September. Uh, But 2019 seventh rounder out of Auburn. And the thing in the Arizona Fall League, like he showed that he's healthy and he really does does not necessarily need to stay in the minor leagues next year. He probably is a guy that should be up in the majors sooner rather than later next year potentially as soon as out of spring training, right? He showed for the most part, other than those two home runs, he's pretty much not unhittable, but it's really hard to score runs on him. Uh, I really liked the combination of the curveball and the fastball, something where it's a big bodied curveball, vertical breaking curveball. And so a lot of dudes try to tee off on it and just completely overswing. Fastball, good vertical uh, induced vertical break up in the zone. And so it looks like it's rising a bit, has that really good combo. They work really well. And again, I think he could be a guy that legitimately is in the bullpen in 2024, pitching high leverage situations, medium to high leverage situations. Or if they wanted to look at him as a rotation option, they absolutely could do that. He did start these games in the AFL. The issue with him in the rotation is he only got 41 and two thirds innings this year because of the injury. And so you'd be in a really tough situation there as far as how much could he start in 2024 because he didn't have a lot of time, a lot of innings under his belt in 2023. He did in 22, he did throw 102 innings and he threw 114 in 2021. So he's been somewhat stretched out for the most part, but I don't know how much a shortened season this year is going to hold him back from being able to give you starter quality innings or starter length innings in 2024. Uh, Talking about starting length innings, Ricky Tiedemann also had a very good Arizona Fall League, something where he was injured a lot this year, right? He had, I think it was like a biceps injury, but even when he came back, the big things that stood out was he never went five innings and he never went over 70 pitches. And the projection for him as a starting pitcher was a little bit iffy, right? Because he wasn't getting the depth that you need a lot of starting pitchers to do. In the Arizona Fall League, he makes four starts, two and one with a 250 ERA, but he goes 18 innings in those four starts. 
He goes over 70 pitches. Some of those he goes over the five innings. And so he showed that it was more a function of the Blue Jays being conservative and watching his health more so than some sort of inherent issue or inability of him to keep his stuff that deep into the Arizona Fall League or that deep into a start, right? Gives up five total runs, only one home run, eight walks to 23 strikeouts, opposing batting average a lot of 190 and a whip of 1-1-1. Really good for Ricky Tiedemann. Again, showed the depth that he can do, how, how that he can go farther into games than maybe necessarily we were expecting him originally to do, as well as showing that he could, that obviously the swing and miss stuff was really good. Uh, tw- 23 strikeouts in 18 innings. and probably that he's ready for a rotation spot in 2024. Something where obviously you've seen that Toronto team have issues in the rotation as far as having enough guys, Alec Manoa, whatever happened to him. And so really interesting to see, okay, what can he do? Another guy that the results were fine, small sample size, but just the stuff looked really good, was reliever lefty reliever Ronan Kopp of the Dodgers. Went eight innings. Uh, three hits, a 1-1-3 ERA, 15 strikeouts to six walks. Big boy, right? 6-7. And fastball slider, fastball ran it up to 97 or so. The slider looked to be pretty good. Only three hits allowed. Again, 15 strikeouts. Didn't really have much of a third pitch in the Arizona Fall League. And then didn't necessarily, again, wasn't throwing a ton of strikes compared to some of the other guys. And so I think he may end up being a reliever, but I think if you shifted Ronan Kopp into a relief role, he could probably see him in 2024 with the Dodgers out of that pen, simply because he has the high-octane stuff the Dodgers look for, He can and he can absolutely blow it past guys. It's just a question of working on the delivery a little bit. He's a bit like 6'7", big guy. So you have some of those proception issues with the longer delivery, the longer levers. But if you can get him to throw strikes a little more consistently, you're absolutely looking at a guy uh, that can be an impact reliever at the major league level, kind of based off of what we saw in the regular season, combined with how good he looked in some shorter stints in the Arizona Fall League. In just a minute, not everybody had a good Arizona Fall League. I want to talk about a couple of those guys that struggled. We'll do that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. Welcome back to Locked on MLB Prospects, final segment of the Tuesday show. Reminder, if you have questions for our Monday mailbag, show ideas, segment ideas, things like that, tons of ways to get them to us. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. There's a link tree in the episode description in the show notes that has access to everything else, our Discord, email, subtext, whatever it might be. So I've talked about him in the past, but a guy that really struggled in the Arizona Fall League, and it kind of continued some of the struggles you've seen in the regular season in the minors, was Kevin Parada of the New York Mets. Playing in 18 games, because again, the catchers just play a little bit less than everybody else. 18 games, he batted 186, 240, 371. Three home runs, seven extra base hits. Only 13 overall. Four walks to 29 strikeouts. And the issue with Kevin Parada is we knew the defense was a problem, right? Like we knew the defense behind the plate 
wasn't great for Kevin Parada. The arm isn't fantastic. He doesn't really get it into really into good positions to make the throws. He caught he, he had a 12% caught stealing rate in the Arizona Fall League this year. He caught five guys, allowed 36. When you look at his regular season, he was one of the worst catching base runners in the minor league season. He allowed 129 stolen bases on 157 attempts. And we talked on this show a couple weeks ago in defense of Dominic Keegan. That's not entirely on the catcher, right? The pitcher plays a big role in this. And actually, at the MLB level, MLB.com just put out an interesting piece where they dug into StatCast data to look at and see which pitchers are the best at holding runners and preventing them from getting big leads and stealing bases and all of that. Interesting article to go find. But when you watch Kevin Parada, he doesn't, the footwork to get into that throw during the pop isn't necessarily great. He doesn't have good accuracy on the throws and the velocity isn't really there. And then as far as the actual mechanics of the catching, he struggles there as well. He struggles with with pitches up in the zone, things like that. And so we knew that it was going to be a stretch to get him to stick at catcher, right? Like we knew that was going to be a, a problem. And if he doesn't stick at catcher, he's probably going to have to move to first base, which means he's going to have even more pressure on the bat to produce, right? And this season in the minors, it just didn't really produce. Three levels between single A St. Lucie, high A Brooklyn, double A Binghamton. 105 games for Kevin Parada, 248, 324, 428. 14 home runs, 41 extra base hits. For a 21-year-old who started two years in college and went to the Cape Cod League, it just feels like you were expecting a little bit better production than that out of Kevin Parada. Not great. And you look at 126 strikeouts to only 36 walks in the regular season. Combine that with the Arizona Fall League, where, again, he strikes out 29 times to only four walks in 18 games. And we're starting to see that Kevin Parada probably is falling down a bit in the Mets prospect rankings. We're probably looking at a back half of the top 10, if not number 10. Whereas going into 2023, you were probably putting him as a top five prospect in the system. Now, caveat here, they did add talent to the system, right? They went out, they got Luis Angel Acuna, they got Drew Gilbert, uh, Ryan Clifford. They went out and got a couple guys. They also drafted some players, Colin Houck's probably in that top 10 now, as well as had breakouts from guys like Mike Basile. But for the most part, Kevin Parada has not helped himself did not help himself in the regular season and did not help himself in Arizona. Another guy, another position player, and caveat here, I don't know if it's because of the position change or not. Jace Young of the Detroit Tigers, mostly second base in the regular season, played third base in the Arizona Fall League, batted like 244, uh, walked a lot, right? Walked like 25% of the time, had a good walk rate in the AFL, but just didn't necessarily show the production you were looking for because offensively, you have to do more at third base than you do at second, right? 
And if you're able to be an above average hitter at second base, it feels like that's probably a little more valuable than than an above average performance at third base because third base is going to be a lot more power than you're necessarily expecting from Jace Young, understanding he hit like 28 home runs in the minors. But I'm curious to see, is this just one of those AFL had too many guys to play second base kind of things? Or is this Detroit's moving him to third? Because we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Justin Henry Malloy is also third base and corner outfield. And then Colt Keith has played both second and third base. And figuring out all those guys at the major league level was going to be interesting. But this obviously does not help because it just, it, it doesn't help because his profile is more of a second baseman than a third base profile. And I worry that the move to third base means he's not going to be as valuable to the team because he doesn't, he's stretched defensively and doesn't have the proper power profile to play third. On the pitching side, Roiber Salinas of the Oakland A's really struggled in the AFL. 19 innings pitched, gave up 19 hits uh, with a, with an ERA over six. Whip was like 163, 12 walks to 23 strikeouts. Now, his final outing wasn't bad. Four innings uh, of shutout baseball, three walks, six strikeouts. And so it's like plenty of walks, but strikeouts didn't allow a bunch of runs there. But before that, really struggled to keep people off the bags and then to keep runs off the board and to have made the trades that Oakland made to get some of the guys that they got like a Joey Estes uh, like a Christian Pache to get some of the guys that they have gotten in these trades from Atlanta and to get such poor performances from so many of these players is obviously not great and Roiber Salinas working out was really going to be needed for Oakland to have made those trades worth it. And I'm worried about he had command issues all season in the minors. He had command issues in the AFL, also gave up a bunch of runs, really concerned about what that means for the future of Weber Salinas as a rotation option, because that's what Oakland needs is quality starting pitchers. Another guy for a different reason, but didn't necessarily have a great Arizona Fall League, was Jake Eater of the Chicago White Sox, the lefty. Fourth rounder by the Marlins in 2020, uh, looked really good before he had Tommy John. It was something like, he had the, the end of 2021, he had a 177 ERA, uh, looked to be like he could be a potential top half of the rotation guy, right? Uh, has Tommy John surgery, working his way back, the velocity is not there yet, right? He was throwing fastballs that were in the mid-90s and could touch the upper 90s before the surgery. He was sitting in the low 90s in the Arizona Fall League. The slider's in the low 80s. The slider looks good, but it's now his best pitch. And the fastball doesn't have nearly either the bite or the velocity that it had before the surgery. Now, we know a lot of guys... Coming back from Tommy John, they adjust their mechanics, trying to be a little more mechanically, biomechanically sound to avoid further injury. Uh, that's the issue like, with a lot of guys coming back is learning the new mechanics and being able to get the same velocity they were getting with the new, more sound mechanics. 
So, something to watch for. You're still good. I'm not saying it was bad, but it was a little disappointing because you were hoping to see more growth in the velocity and in the uh, shape and performance of that fastball from Jake Eater. Still really interesting to see what he does in 2024. And I feel like this is probably something you just, it happened, you move on, and you look at trying to reset uh, and start over in 2024 with a new slate now that you're with the White Sox. Fantastic week this week. Tons of stuff, fun stuff coming up this week and next week. By the time you listen to this, they would have already announced the Rookie of the Year awards. We're going on the record and saying it's probably Corbin Carroll and Gunder Henderson, but if it's somebody different, we'll definitely talk about that on Wednesday's show. In the meantime, remember, it's always a great time to pay a minor leaguer. (laughs) 